keep pushing. Keep pushing, keep pushing. And I need you to be a minister for a moment and find somebody sit, sitting in your general vicinity. Look them dead in the eyes if they owe you $20. And tell them, neighbor, whatever you do, keep pushing. Keep pushing, keep pushing. It's hard to keep pushing in the world that we're living in right now. How is one supposed to find serenity and sanity and strength in the world we live in right now? Everybody, good morning and welcome back. So happy to have you here. Just want to remind everyone, I finally unlocked the Instagram subscription ability, if you will. I don't know if this is a video game or not. Seems like it is, um, but I uh, I unlocked it, and so I'm creating subscriber-only content on Instagram. So I'm hosting multiple reels a day. I'm hosting Instagram lives once a week. Where you can ask any and all questions. Uh, they're usually 30 to 45 minutes long. Um, I'm hosting Instagram lives with podcast guests as well too. Exclusive stories, exclusive reels. Um, you get access to a group chat so we can just build more thriving community. Most people um, that are obviously subscribing, doing a lot of self-work, uh, have a bunch of questions around dating, relationships, um, you know, just self-awareness. And so you're going to be in a community of people uh, working on themselves, doing similar things as you. So I think it's just a great way to build community. It's $5 a month. It's a really cheap way you can give back, support not only the podcast, but me as well too and my work. So $5 a month, head over to Instagram, at that Verizon boy. If you already follow me, please consider subscribing. It's a huge help. Um, I haven't monetized the podcast to keep it ad-free. That might change relatively soon, but I promise to only run one ad at a time for everyone. I'm not going to like fill the podcast with a ton of ads. Um, but it's time to start monetizing this work so I can continue to do it more and more. And ultimately, I've been working on a book um, for the past year, basically, and I really want to get to work on that and finish it up so I can get it published for all of you. Um, so this helps kind of funnel that and support that project. So for five bucks a month, head over to Instagram, subscribe. It means a ton and you're going to get access to a lot more. Also, I work with people in one-on-one -on -one settings over Zoom, individuals, couples, athletes. If you're interested in working with me on one-on-one, -on -one, whether you're an individual or you're a couple, um, head over to the to my website, www.nicobarraza.com to inquire more. You can always book a free 15-minute Zoom consultation. Get to know me a little bit about how I work with people and see if it's a good fit. So head over to that. And lastly, but not leastly, uh, if you head over to the website and you want to buy some gear, some Starve the Ego, Feed the Soul podcast gear, please do so. Um, so many people order this stuff and it's awesome when I get tagged in it uh, on, on social media. There's people all over the world rocking Starve the Ego, Feed the Soul sweatshirt, t-shirt, cup or water bottle. It's just it's just super dope when people um, rock gear the podcast. And the tagline, it's just a meaningful message, right? It's always a conversation starter. You know, if you're walking down the street with the Starve the Ego, Feed the Soul t-shirt, a lot of people end up asking you questions because they think it's neat because they also think that that's a, um, a great way to live life. So check out the gear, www.nigobarraza.com. All right, y'all. So this week's guest is Miss Skylar Debray. Just want to make sure I pronounce her name right. <laughs> Skylar, thank you so much for correcting me. Um, she has a very interesting way to spell her, her first name, but Skylar is a former American professional soccer player. Um, she played soccer at Duke University, very high-performing athlete, and then uh, went pro after that. And Skylar and I have a deep, intimate conversation about her struggle with her mental and emotional health and also the influence of sport and athletics and also relationships on that health. Um, we get into a ton of things from mood disorder to dealing with uh, depression and suicidality and suicidal ideation. Uh, so if that's triggering for you, I want to just give you a little bit of a... Um, a warning there, but this is an incredible episode. Uh, Skylar is an incredible woman. Um, her her partner, in fact, uh, a wonderful dude, Connor, helped us uh, or helped her set up the the camera gear that when we were when we were filming. So really appreciate him doing that as well too. Um, and just generally had a heart to heart. Um, just a very good conversation with a a, a fellow uh, retired pro athlete um, who has struggled with some stuff. And I think. Um, 
her ability to share candidly is really sort of a, a welcome invitation um, to all of you out there to know that you're not alone, that a lot of people struggle with this stuff. And it's also a story of recovery, right? How she's doing better, how she got to where she is today. Um, you know, her decision to leave uh, the National Women's Soccer League here in the U.S., um, you know, some some big, you know, hard decisions that she made, but ultimately um, were made for with her health uh, in in the forefront, which I think is how we all need to make our decisions, right? Not just for austerity or fame or followers or fortune, but but what what truly feeds your soul? How are you going to be the healthiest, you know, most joyous human being, um, and set yourself up for emotional success, just like you're setting yourself up for financial and intellectual success and relational success too, right? Thank you all so much for being here. As always, it's inspiring to see how incredible this show has grown over the past year and a half, basically. Um, Don't forget, it just started in March 2021. So um, pretty amazing. All right, everybody. Don't forget to subscribe on Instagram. I'm going to plug that one more time. Go subscribe, five bucks a month. Here we go. Off to the show. Skylar Debray. Skylar Debray, thank you so much for joining me on Starve the Ego, Feed the Soul. Um, It's an honor to have you. I've had a couple other current and retired professional athletes, um, and you are up there with with best of them, just with your accomplishments, being a um, well-known D1 soccer player and then being a professional soccer player for a while too. But primarily why I'm having you on the show is because of how incredibly open you are about your battles with mental and emotional struggles, not just throughout being an athlete, but just in your you know personal life too. But I think it's always interesting when we talk to athletes from a perspective of, of how stressful and sometimes how toxic those environments can be and how those affect us from a young age, right? And how they influence all our relationships and lives in our lives and how we, you know, show up in the world, right? And so when we spoke off air before I invited you on the show, I would, first of all, I was just really impressed with just how honest and open you were and how kind you were. And, you know, it was easy to see how much work you've done as an individual to get to this point today where you can share your story with people and, and honestly help a lot of folks because, you know, when you, when you were talking, I was like, wow, so many people could relate to this, right? Not necessarily being a pro soccer player, right? But with the struggles you're speaking of. So uh, thank you so much for joining me and it's an honor to share time with you. Yeah. Thank you for that intro. And thank you so much for having me. I, uh, when I got off the initial call that we had off air, I think, I just became even more excited to come on the podcast because I love the conversation that we had. I felt very seen and um, I like, it's one of my favorite things in the world to talk to people who you feel like understand you on a deeper level, both as an athlete, but like more importantly, like you said, as a human and can share uh, insight in, in terms of mental health experiences and human experiences. So yeah, I'm excited to dive more into it today. Absolutely. And before we do that, I just want to give a quick shout out to your boyfriend, Connor, who spent all the time setting up the camera and helping us out. Um, so thank you yeah. to him. Angel. Yeah. Sweet human being. Um, <laughs> okay. So, you know, we could start this in a lot of different ways, right? But, but I really want you to tell listeners, like if they have no background on you at all, you know, um, like how did you get into, first of all, um, being in a spot to speak about your mental health in a way and, and, you know, going go so far as like being on this that podcast, right? Because the initial my initial contact with you was through um, Playoff, which is like a dating app for athletes. But you were like part of I don't know maybe the promotional stuff. But you had came up in a conversation with the um, the uh, this the founder of that who actually had on the show Amanda McGrew, right? And she was like, oh, you should talk to this this woman too because she's doing some incredible work around mental health, specifically in the space of speaking up with with athletes and the a sport of professional soccer. So, but it's uncommon, right? I mean, more athletes, you know, Michael Phelps has spoken up about it. There's other pro, like big time athletes have spoken up about it, but it's still a pretty small minority, you know? And how did you get to a point now where you feel, you know, open to speaking about your, your personal struggles? Yeah, I think the, one of the biggest factors is just being in a better place now. Whenever yeah. I've been in a down place, it is so much harder to talk about things when you're in it. Right. 
And so I do think that just feeling a little bit emotionally distant from the experiences is one of the most important parts of it. And then I've always been a sharer. Like I think you can talk to my friends going back all the way to middle school, certainly high school and college. And it's like, yeah, she can't lie. She can't hide anything. Like I just am honest to a fault at times. And it helps me like talking through things with the people that I trust, even with people that I don't fully trust and don't fully know. I, for whatever reason, it's just kind of been my nature from the beginning that I'm open to sharing things and talking about things. I'd rather connect with people about meaningful, hard conversations than talk about fluff and things that don't in my world mean as much to me. Um, Yeah. do you think you were like that from a very young age or is this something that is like you've grown into in adulthood? I've been like that from a young age. And I think yeah. part of it is that my parents were always, I always felt like they were a safe space. So like the immediate community that I grew up in being my family, uh, my parents and my brother, it felt like I could talk to them about anything. They were very open, very trusting. Yeah. And yeah, I think I also, um, in a lot of ways, didn't. I had an incredibly innocent childhood. Like I was very lucky yeah. to grow up in a very like healthy home where we had what we needed, and I felt very loved and safe. And yeah. so I think that, like a lot of the friends that I had and people that I've met who might have trouble sharing, sometimes are people who like have felt the need to protect others because there's already a lot of burden in their life and they don't want to add to that. And I really didn't have that growing up. So that just wasn't the dynamic that I experienced or saw. Um, so I think that also helped. It's wonderful. You can recognize that because I think one of the misconceptions that people somehow think and anyone that practices therapy or counseling or or coaching that they don't think this way but i feel like a lot of the public is like well if you have a pretty a-okay childhood from the outsider's perspective like hey both your parents loved you they were there for you emotionally you know you had good relationships with your siblings um you know why do you have struggles you know and i think the the answer is that everyone does but we Mm -hmm. deal with them differently you know And and i like the distinction you make because your ability to process you know might be a little bit healthier just because you had a safe space when you were young to express. Right. And so if you wouldn't mind sharing with us, you know, when was your first bout of, you know, or when, I guess, when did you first become aware? Like you might be struggling, you know, somehow mentally and emotionally, was that when soccer got really competitive when you started to excel? Was it before then? Yeah. Um, I think one other thing I'll say too, just to go back to the family, because I think it's an important piece that I want to mention is like, my brother who grew up in the same environment that I did, he doesn't talk about anything ever. And Mm. so a big part of it is personality too. And I think there is that like younger sibling complex and also the like impact of like growing up in a more masculine culture where it's less acceptable to share your feelings. So that I'm sure like there are so many nuances there, but yeah. um, Just want to, no, that's a beautiful thing to share because I, yeah. I can echo that too. Like many men that I work with, it's like, well, I've never been invited to act this way. So I don't know how, you know, right. so absolutely. Yeah. So true. That breaks my heart, but um, I feel like that is changing, which makes me happy. Um, yeah. And in terms of the first time that I started to feel some sort of mental struggle, for an extended period of time was my junior year of high school. And I remember just feeling incredibly fatigued and angsty. And I was like randomly lashing out to my mom. And then like within the same breath, I'd be like, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I said that. Like I just, it was a weird kind of internal conflict I was having and I didn't feel like myself. And, and I eventually got some, testing done and they found out that I had mono and I was severely anemic so iron deficient at the same time and so that was a big reason that I was not feeling like myself I um, started taking iron supplements and I felt like a new person in two weeks 
So that was, I would say the first period where I was like, wow, I am not myself. Um, and it lasted for, you know, maybe two or three months. And then it wasn't again until like junior college. Sorry, okay. So, so from then that's a pretty big, you know, cause having played competitive sports in high school and college, like there's a switch that flips at some point as a young athlete where like it becomes a game you play to, it becomes a mm-hmm. job you do. Right. Yeah. And you know what I'm talking about, right? It's kind of when yeah. some of the fun leaves it and that's, it's unfortunate. And I think one of the beautiful things is when an athlete can keep, keep, keep the love for the sport, like the pure love for it, even in those times, because a lot of people that say coaches, other players, you know, um, contracts, all these other things that enter in the reality of sport can sometimes like tarnish the purity of like, you're playing a game, you know? And yeah. when we were kids and like six, seven years old running around, you know, the recess field, like that's how it started. Right. It was, you know, yeah. obviously there's kids that are more competitive than others. You, you <laughs> probably are one of those kids, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, that there's a switch that flips within like our minds. And sometimes that has nothing to do with the family we grew up in. It's just like the pressure society and culture puts on us or we put on ourselves because of what we're getting into. You know, we kind of keep going down this hole. I get better, I get better, I excel. And then I, mm-hmm. I find myself in this state of like, oh, if I don't succeed, I'm a failure. If I don't, you know, play this well, if I'm not this good, I, I, I don't feel worthy, right? Was there a point yeah. in your life that that happened? Or did this, did that really sort of blossom, I guess, when you went, when you went to college? Yeah, I think it happened a little bit in that period. Like I was yeah. so fatigued and unhealthy that I, for instance, would step onto the field and within a minute, it would feel like I'd run a marathon. Like I just had n- no energy left in my legs. And I remember coming off the field um, after a national championship game, we had just won like the, we just won the semifinals of the national championship or something like that. And I had gone on the field for the last three minutes and felt like trash within 30 seconds. And mm-hmm. I was crying just because I was so confused about why my body was feeling this way. And my dad was like, if you can't be happy after that win and that team effort, then we shouldn't be doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know. Like, I think that doesn't fully speak to, I lost sight of it as a game. I think more than anything, I wanted to just play and have fun. still. like, that's why I was so concerned. I was like, I want to play this game that I love. It wasn't thoughts about, Oh, I'm going to, I'm not going to get a scholarship now. I'm not, I'm sure that was part of it, but mainly it was like, why can't I play the game that I love? And like, why can't I run around and be the player that I love being? Mm -hmm. And I really don't think I felt the intense pressure to a degree that was really detrimental until like my sophomore year of college. Like it all felt fun. It felt relatively easy. I think I was really blessed to like have an athletic base and then have an amazing club coach who kept it fun and mm-hmm. preached, you know, like just be a good o- overall soccer player. You're not going to be a center back. You're not going to be a forward. You're not going to be a midfielder. Like how can you move around the field and be the best at all of those things? Like, I think mm-hmm. all of those dynamics kept it fun and kept like, it was reminders that it's a game. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had a really good freshman year of college and I'd, definitely had a bit of that sophomore sum. Like part of my great freshman year was relevant to no one expects anything of you. It's supposed to just be fun. You're playing with all these amazing new teammates, your new family that you met. And as a freshman, everyone else is taking care of the logistics around you so you can just show up and play. And I think that worked really well for me. And then coming back in sophomore year, I felt the pressure to continue that trajectory and now step into more of a leadership role and maybe help the freshmen coming in behind me. And like all those additional pressures started to yeah, link to like, if I can't do these things, I'm no longer a good, I, my value as a soccer player is now in question right. and, you know, like helping Duke women's soccer succeed mm-hmm. is, and Duke is a bigger, very well-known program. It's a very well-known program in many sports, right? So it's like, yeah. you know, there's differences with like what schools you go to and that school is traditionally known as being competitive in, in most sports it competes in, right? And so yeah. I'm sure it's no different. And women's soccer program is probably a top soccer program, right? I mean, if you're going on a plane after that, 
would you say like a lot of that pressure that was put on, was it from coaching? Was it from the program? Was it from yourself? Was it from peers? Like, how did you embody it? Where did it come from? Mainly from myself. Um, and then just like the overall culture, I would say, you know, everyone contributes yeah. a little bit. It's the way that the players and your teammates talk about our goals as a team. It's the way the coaches talk about what's valuable on the team and what it looks like to be a good teammate, things like that. Like it all kind of adds together. And I'd say the culture was like, you, you should be focused on making sure that Duke women's soccer wins a national championship, let's say. Yeah. Which I don't think that's a bad thing, but yeah, like the the pressures there. It's it's more than just let's run around and have a good time. Which fair people's right. salaries are relying on yeah. us performing well and and it's a business at the end of the day. It is. <laughs> like I, you know, yeah. I think when you were in college, uh, um, college athletes still weren't allowed to get paid, right? No. Yeah. yeah. So now it's now it's a little different. But you know when you know when we. We're both in college. It's a business. You're making money. You know, you're putting butts in the stands, or even even like the whole program revolves around marketing. And there's a lot of things that happen that make the school money. Right? It has to be profitable, or they probably wouldn't have the team. Um, and so, I guess you know, you mentioned culture, like culture, especially. And, and again, I'm an outsider because I have no clue what it's like to be in elite level soccer, play pro soccer, like especially as a female in this country. Like, how did that culture? in college throughout your transition into pro soccer affect your well-being because it seemed before we before we got on air like when we when we had our pre-call it seemed like that was one of like the primary things is that because you're like i'm never going to go back to this organization (laughs) you know we didn't get into it but i'm it it seems like it's a cultural thing right definitely i would say that my experience in college yes like there was the pressures around performing well as an individual performing for the team for something bigger than yourself and Mm -hmm. like you know winning and being a good successful program meant something like there was heaviness there and importance there at least that I felt um and I would say that most players would agree that they felt that sort of pressure both from Duke and from like women's college soccer in general But when you're in college, you have all these other things that are balancing out. Like you can still derive your like sense of value from your academics or your social life or all these other pillars that make up your day to day. Mm -hmm. And in comparison, like the NWSL, especially the National Women's Soccer League, is I found it incredibly hard to stay balanced. The pressure related to soccer and the heaviness of individual performance and team performance and what that means about you as an individual is heavy. I felt it was heavy. And then at the same time, you have less of these other pillars to lean on if Mm -hmm. your soccer pillar is not as strong. Mm -hmm. And at times I also felt like the culture, the culture made me feel like I shouldn't have other pillars. Like if I was, doing other things I was passionate about. It's like, are you focused enough on soccer? Like, do you love it enough? Do you, do you want this badly enough to be part of the NWSL and be a part of this team? Right. And that was really unhealthy for me. And, but that wasn't the first time that you had like a really big struggle with depression, right? Cause you had about in college. Is that right? Yeah. And looking back on it, that one was more minor. I okay. was certainly, not myself for pretty much an entire semester, I'd say three to four months where I was very fatigued sleeping nine to 11 hours every night and still waking up and feeling unmotivated, not wanting to talk to anyone, not getting an enjoyment from the activities that I normally would. So I I was absolutely depressed, but um, it looked very different than the two periods of depression I've had since college. Okay. And so do you, do you remember like if there was a trigger to the one in college? Um, I still haven't figured it out. Like when I talk about it, I still find it kind of, it's bad to say this, but like kind of funny just because my sophomore year I tore my ACL. Um, Mm -hmm. and I did rehab 
and got back and was like ready for the first game of my junior year. And I think most people would think like, oh, you probably experienced some depression in that period. And like, it was, wasn't great. Like I remember some of those days being really hard, but I never felt hopeless. Like I remember being challenging, but a good challenge in a way. Versus junior year, I come back from my ACL tear. I start and play in every single game and have a pretty good season. And I was so depressed, like just so it, and it, I think it is a good reminder. Um, I forget to factor that chapter in sometimes because my more recent mental health experiences have been far more intense. Mm-hmm. And my more recent ones have certainly confirmed to me that I have a more, like I, we talked about this before, like I think everyone has cyclical moods, right? Like chemicals change in your brain or whatever it might be, like seasonal affective disorder, everyone has up and downs. Yeah. But I have like the chemicals in my brain cycle more intensely than the average person. Like my ups have been really, really intense and my my downs have been really, really intense. And I think yeah. that was the first example of like the way that I'm feeling does not map out at all onto what's happening in my external environment. And you, now you have awareness around it, but, but I'm guessing probably when you first started playing pro, it, the awareness is probably less and the influence of the culture and the program you were playing for probably didn't help you stay healthy. Would that be a fair assumption? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So can you, can you tell us about, you know, cause most people listening are not going to have a clue about what it's like to you know, put on a professional soccer uniform and, and go, you know, play at that level, you know, what is, what is the culture like and how did it influence your, your health and your well being? Yeah, I, so the, when I was initially drafted out of college, I went to the Washington spirit mm-hmm. um, and I left after about a month because I went in halfway through the season and I was not immediately given a contract and did not think that I was going to be able to earn a full-time contract. I was just going to be making part-time contracts, which really like you wind up making about a thousand dollars a month and are, you aren't on consistent benefits. It's just not a good way to live. And it's changed since then the structure. Um, But I decided to go and play in Prague instead. And, playing in Prague and playing abroad was a completely different experience than playing domestically. And I'm happy to talk about that too, but I think I'll talk about the NWSL culture and experience because that is where I had my like two most significant mental health challenges. Um, So like one part of the women's professional league in the U S right now. And it it might be, yeah, it is common other like leagues abroad too, that you have a game day roster. And I think this is probably true for many, many sports, but this idea that, you know, you carry more players than you need on your game day roster. So when your game day comes, um, maybe you get a text from your coach or there's a sign in the locker room that says, these are the players that are going to be playing tomorrow. And these are the, let's say like two to six players who are going to be in the stands. And therefore you will be training before the game separately from the team. And that just makes it really clear where the coaches see you. And so it's, you know, very in your face, like, okay, I am in the bottom five players on this team. And I had never been in in that position until I got out to Seattle, the Rain FC. That was like the first time in my career where I really felt like I wasn't one of like, at least in the upper half of a team. And instead of just being in the bottom half, I was in the bottom five. And like, I just didn't know how to cope with that. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, I don't know. There's just an intensity about women's soccer. There's so much pride there, which I love. It's part of why I love it. Like it's this, like there's a lot of grittiness and yeah. desire to win and tenacity, I'd say with most players. Right. 
but sometimes I just, I, yeah, I didn't always have that myself. Um, like I love playing pickup soccer. I love just going out and playing and kicking around and not overthinking tactics and just kind of flowing with the game. Like that's really what I love. And so in the NWSL, there are a lot of these amazing players who live and breathe the game and want to be thinking about tactics and make it clear in conversations. Maybe it's not directly to you. They're not like players might not say, I think you are not invested enough in the game, but Mm -hmm. I was a part of so many conversations where the person's like, you know, this teammate seems like they're, they don't care as much because they never watch soccer. And you're like, well, they don't watch soccer that much. And there's so many instances like that where like the culture is created, the expectations are, you know, that are like unwritten, but felt heavily. Mm -hmm. It's like the feeling you're like, am I respected by my teammates? And you want that. I always wanted that so badly to like be respected by my teammates. And I think I worried about it too much. Yeah. I was watching like, this was just on the news like a couple of days ago on NBC and it was, and it was literally talking about the national women's soccer league and about like, just like trends of abuse, whether it's like verbal, physical abuse, like the culture being like pretty abusive. Is that, is that like, would you say that's in line with your experience when you were in pro soccer here in the States? Um, yes. Yeah. I was that can't really be super healthy for anyone's mental health. Right. No, no. Um, yeah, I've been I've been pretty lucky personally, um, but I've had a few experience with certain coaches where, yes, I would say their posture was like their the the power dynamics that they held within the team and the way that they enforced those power dynamics was so unhealthy. And I have heard so many firsthand stories of other teammates who have been in like other professional teams who validated like pretty much everything that that report and all the associated news reports had to say. Right. Yeah. Not healthy. Yeah. I I asked that because I mean, even if you didn't have firsthand, you know, experience of that, it seems like it's just the culture that influences. Right. And if, if you're already sort of struggling with, you know, being stable or finding yourself and you're in such a stressful, stressful environment is like having to perform to make this roster, you know, and there's ego associated with it, but also expectations and, you know, like views of failure and success based on, you know, what, what you're trying to do. It's your job, but it's also like your, your like life's work, right? You're trying to make like a starting team, right? Um, you know, you, you, your first sort of run in with, with, you know, kind of a severe bout of depression, you know, really came, like you said, when, when you were, full-time right pro how did that manifest like what 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 were like the things that started that and then how long did it last and what did it look like yeah so I moved out to Tacoma Washington which is just south of Seattle to play with the rain FC um and that team had some of the best players in the world um including Megan Rapino and then Ali Long at the time and national team players from a bunch of other countries like Canada and um, Australia and England. Like it's just, you know, you're surrounded by some really, really talented players. Mm-hmm. And I was like, my mentality going in, I was like, I'm so excited for this. And I, I feel like I hadn't been challenged. I was just in Prague where the level of soccer and amount of resources was less than Duke. So I was like, I'm so excited to be in a like more professional environment. Mm-hmm. So it got there, felt like my mentality was really positive. And it seemed like that for about two months. And then I, again, like, I don't know what the specific trigger was. Um, I just started to have, I finally like the self doubt started to creep in and as opposed to the two months before where I was always able to come back to like, no, just keep working hard. It doesn't really matter. Just work hard, be positive, bring a good attitude and like keep getting better. And that's all you need to focus on. Like slowly that ability to bring myself back to a healthy mental place 
kind of lost its grip and I went to a U23 camp in I think we were, yeah we were in England and I had gone to the same U23 event the year before and started and played in most of the games and played really well and this year when I went I did not start in any game and just felt like I already kind of just felt off going into it and then that kind of felt like the last straw that just really demolished my self-confidence and I got back and I started to have these self-doubt thoughts intensify um and they weren't just about soccer they slowly started to become about my relationships my intelligence like like my ability to function in the day-to-day world my appearance like every, like all you know all the normal insecurities every insecurity i had they all popped up and then a new ones started to pop up and it became like i some degree of ocd thinking kicked in where I could not stop thinking about these negative thoughts about myself. Like I struggled to have conversations with people. I was so distracted by these thoughts that I was having. And then um, at one, one day, I don't know when it was, my train of thought led to something along the lines of like, my life is so good right now. Like again, externally, my life is great. I'm playing on an amazing team. Like I have great friends. My family's healthy. My friends are healthy. And yet I am so sad. And I feel like I'm kind of losing the ability to function. Like I feel like I can't hold conversations and I can't get myself to make myself food. Like I'm not, I, I literally can't even boil water for pasta. Like I, I feel like I'm falling apart and everything's fine. And therefore I feel like I'm going to take my own life eventually. Like I, that was just the logic process that my brain went through. And once I got to that conclusion, my brain could not let it go. Like I just obsessed over it for like probably two weeks straight. And the more I thought about it, it was like one of those like Chinese, um, like the what is it called like the finger trap basically where the harder yeah yeah, the harder you pull away the tighter that it gets and the more stuck you feel and the more convinced you are that you're going to be stuck forever Mm. so yeah like i just became completely convinced that i was going to take my own life and like felt that in my body like the fear and the terror that comes with that um and so I finally wound up expressing this to some degree to my parents. Like I, they knew I wasn't right. Like I could it just wasn't myself clearly. Um, and my dad wound up flying out to Seattle and picked me up and drove me all the way back to New Jersey. And I, I like had a conversation with my coach where I was like, I think I need to leave. And he was like, why? And I was like, I, I'm worried about my life and like my well being, and I think I could take my own life. And he, to give him credit, was very understanding. The general manager of the team was as supportive as I could possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, he paid me through the rest of the season. He eventually like released my rights so I could go play with the North Carolina Courage a year and a half, two years later, once I decided to come back to professional soccer always made me feel welcomed and supported and I knew like I could get or he would help provide any resources I need. So mm-hmm. it's very, very lucky in that sense that the organization supported me and didn't make it a more complicated process than it had to be. Um, yeah. yeah. Was that your first experience like in your life with suicidal ideation? Yeah. First time ever. And I was like, what is this? Like, I just had no idea. And didn't even have awareness. I think I had heard the term suicidal ideation, but I didn't know what it actually meant. Um, so yeah. Did it ever get to the point, uh, that you like felt like you had intent to actually like carry it through? (sighs) 
once I got home to New Jersey, yes, there were days where I felt like if I had an easy out, um, then yes. But luckily, I didn't. Like, yeah. yeah. So share with us a little bit, Skylar, about how, you know, because this is the first one, right? And there was a second, I guess let's say episode, right? Like, how do you go from both of these like dark nights of the soul where you don't want to be here anymore. And I can completely relate because I've had two instances in my life where very similar sentiments, specifically after my cycling crash in 2019, that pretty much took my ability to be a pro athlete away. Um, you know, I so badly didn't want to exist. And I got very close um, to taking my own life and I've had I've lost friends to suicide. I've had uh, people that I love um, choose to not leave. Right. And so from your story, like how did you go from, both of those experiences and feel free to share share the second one too like how do you get from that point and i know it's a lot of work and a lot of support but getting to a place where you feel stable enough where you feel like you want to be here again where you feel like there is purpose about uh, from living your life yeah such a good question um the first time i would say that the biggest factor was feeling a sense of purpose again Um, so I spent three months home in New Jersey and then another five months in North Carolina with my uncle and like that, that whole eight months, pretty like 24 seven was intensely, um, having suicidal ideation. And like, I think it was the last month of that eight month process was when I was in North Carolina with my uncle, he was like, I think you should apply to grad school. I was like, no, I don't want to. Like, I really don't feel capable of going to grad school right now, but I'll apply. Like, I'll do that. COVID had just hit. So they had waived some of the testing and all that. And I was able to put an application together, got through a call with a professor who was kind of like, I'm sorry, like, what is going on with your life? And like, why do you want to be a part of this program? And I was able to just say, COVID changed a lot of things. And I don't really know what I want to study. I don't really know. But I do want to learn. And I think that this will be a great program for me to learn new skills. You know, like, and he was like, all right, makes sense to me. (laughs) So I was still so unwell, but still was able to get into an awesome master's of public health at UNC largely because of COVID. And, um, once I got that acceptance letter, I was like, shit, I guess I, I need to like try to prepare for this. Like I need to relearn how to have conversations with people. Um, and, you know, like just having something other than soccer. It was the first time that I had something other than soccer that I was actually excited about. Like still didn't feel like I was capable of doing it, but I was like, this would hypothetically be great if I could do it. Like this gets me Mm -hmm. excited and I could Mm -hmm. had tangible tasks every day that I had to do to work towards that. So that I think was the biggest part of, getting healthy the first time was having that. And then also I was on medication at the time. Um, I was on Wellbutrin and I do think that like that gave me some of the momentum and energy to do the things that I needed to do. Right. Um, yeah. And this second time was really interesting. It was, almost it felt to me like it was almost completely medication um okay i started the depressive episode started halfway through my season with the courage um in that time period i managed to like get a job with a nonprofit in north carolina for once the season ended because i i was like okay clearly then Vassell is not a place for me in my brain like this is not working and that's fine um but need to do something else mm-hmm. still was having really intense suicidal ideation again like struggled to focus but it was not quite as bad as the first episode 
And for the first three months of my job was feeling that way. And I was having, I was like, I feel like I'm going to need to quit my job. Like they're going to fire me any day. Like I can't function. I'm not functioning in my job. Um, and so my, um, doctor switched my medication completely. And within two weeks, it was like all of the intrusive thoughts about suicide, about self-doubt, about all of it. Like they were suddenly just not sticky anymore. They just would not stay in my brain. And I could recognize their rationality and I had more bandwidth to focus on other things. And it, Mm. yeah, completely changed my ability to like function, to feel hope, to, yeah, want to live. So would you say you you have like generally a positive experience with medication? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because I feel like we live in a culture now where you know, a lot of people are averse using meds to treat their mental health, which I completely understand, right? Because I think, you know, we, we often throw a pill at a problem thinking it's going to solve yeah. it. But I do think there are circumstances such as your own that absolutely warrants, you know, we, we, we've spent a lot of time researching these things for a while and they're not for everybody, but I think for certain individuals, absolutely. Like they allow you to maintain a certain baseline where you can like live a healthy life and not consistently like have this dread over you the entire time yeah yeah and i fought it for so long i was totally in that camp of like medication is last resort worst case scenario which i I do still think of it as like it should be the last thing you try like you there are so many other options and like ways to help your mental health but um yeah i uh medication is yeah completely changed my life and I'm definitely a proponent of it um, and hope to reduce the stigma around it. Absolutely. That's why you're here. We, we talked a little bit about, you know, just diagnoses and and working with providers and, you know, you spoke a bit before we got off the phone on our pre-call just about like, you know, know, I guess there was, I can't remember the terminology, but terminology used to describe like, you know, what you experience, right. Basically on a daily or monthly or, you know, yearly basis. Um, can you share that with us? Cause I'd love to get into that about, you know, like, you know, why like being diagnosed with something or, or having something that you, you know, you consider yourself having that, you know, it's so stigmatized in our culture, depending on what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's, it could be a whole podcast episode and I'd want to pull in all my friends who studied psych and neuro right. to get their opinions on it. But Yeah, I mean, like, I have a family history of um, mood disorders, and I think, and, like, the member, one member particularly of my family who has been dealing with it significantly for pretty much a lifetime, like, I don't have a relationship with them. And so I always associated being diagnosed with a mood disorder as, you know, like, maybe not being connected with your family, maybe not living a life that I, I wanted to live. Right. Um, which, and yeah, it's not just based off of that family member. We see so much of like the media that we consume frames mental health in a certain way. And you're like, Oh, that is, that is what that mental illness means. That's what my life will look like. If I have that, that's how people will treat me if I have this. Right. Um, And I really appreciate my um, psychiatrist who like there was one meeting I had with him where I was like, well, like after this now second cycle that I've been in, like, would you say that I have X? And he was like, no, I, I'm not really a fan of labels. If you, if it would help you for me to put a label on you, then I can do that. But I really don't think it's necessary or, accurate um like the term that he's used with me is the one that i've adopted is this like cyclical mood disorder and that framing of yes it's not a diagnosis because everyone has cyclical moods and there's a spectrum of how intense it gets and i'm on like a pretty intense side of that spectrum but right yeah i think that's a that's a beautiful thing for your psychiatrist to follow through because i feel like you know 
as someone who studied clinical mental health counseling in graduate school, like, you know, there, there's a, it's actually in the code of ethics where like, you know, you should not diagnose anyone with anything unless you feel like it's going to help them heal, you know? And I do think we, I do think we live, that doesn't, it's not always the case though, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, sometimes people will give someone a diagnosis where it might help their family help them more, right? And so there's certain places where that applies. But I think, you know, as a whole, our culture really still stigmatizes certain diagnoses, right? Depression seems to be more accepted now, right? Because people are like, well, mm. I've dealt with depression. So more people, anxiety, same thing. But when yeah. we talk about mood disorders or personality disorders, you know, people still stigmatize these. Like we talk about bipolar disorder. There's a lot of people with bipolar disorder, right? But they can function mm-hmm. normal in society. They can still care about individuals. They can still have great relationships. Um, yeah. But there's certain things they have to be able to deal with and people around them have to be able to manage too. And it takes work from both ends, you know? But I think one of the beautiful things about you sharing about, you know, having something like a cyclical mood disorder is that you can still live a normal life, a, have great relationships, like love yourself, but it takes work. It takes a lot of work, just like a lot of other things do in life, right? But I think yeah. one of the things that you understand as an athlete is to get as good as you are or as get as good as you got at soccer, you have to play, right? You have to show up at some point, you know, and you have mm-hmm. to play. And that's the same thing I feel like with our mental and emotional health, like in the times when we're most down, you know, we need support, we need people to be around us. But at some point we have to pick our feet up. You know, we really do have to say, I want to stay here and make a pretty, like, you know, delineated decision that, you know, we're going to sort of hold on to the edge as, as strong as we can and find some resources to feel better. Because I think one of the one of the struggles that people face when they don't have a great support group is like, well, where do they look for hope? You know, and we can become very hopeless when we isolate ourselves for so long, you know, and that's, I think when, when I've felt, you know, the most suicidal in my life is one when my physical health is, is awful. And you can probably relate to this, like being an athlete, like you consistently define yourself or even a young person, like to define yourself as like, I want to be physically able to do what I want to do. Right. And so if that's taken away, that's a huge thing. But also, if you don't have like a loving, supporting community around you, it can be really hard to dig yourself out of those holes without people to lean on. And that just goes to show like we're we're here for connection. You know, we need that. And people always ask me like, well, where do I find these people? I'm like, well, we have to create them. You know, <laughs> thankfully for you, you had your family, your partner, right? People that supported yeah. you. But to people that don't, you know, I just want to I just want to like drill this in. Like we, we really do have to build that community even when we're in despair, even when we're in a depressive episode. Because it's one, it's really healthy for us as individuals, but two, you have to have people you love so you can be in service. Cause I, and I, you're probably going to agree with this is that one of the best anecdotes for feeling like shit is to go help other people. Totally. Yeah. Right. So from like, you know, obviously you've, you've grown a lot since those two episodes. And I think you, you, you said when we talked, you had a, you had a more recent one than those two, right? Is that correct? Um, no, those two were no, okay. my most Those recent. two were, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so from, from those two, like, it seems like a lot has changed, right? Cause the, that, the last one, the most recent one, how long ago was it? It was about six months ago now. Okay. So from then, like, you know, have you, have you learned more about yourself? How do you see yourself in a different way? Like, how do you feel like you, you conceptualize like the struggles you've been through now versus maybe when you were in them? Yeah. I, number one, I have, we actually talked about this last night with my partner and the conclusion was that I, I, I mean, I've known this, but reaffirming the conclusion that I want to find another therapist. I had to stop using the one I was using um, because of the, you know, state line boundaries. I was in North Carolina, had a therapist. And now that I'm in, I'm bouncing around, I need to figure out what that means. Um, But I think I still have a lot to work through here. I think a lot of times I'm very quick to, simplify it down to my chemicals and my brain state and not give myself enough credit for the behaviors and the decisions I made and the work that I put in to get out of the place that I was in Mm -hmm. and to 
be where I am now and to stay where I am now. I think that a huge learning was um, like between, so after my first depressive episode, I was on Wellbutrin, as I mentioned, which um, is an antidepressant and I stayed on it for too long. So I hit my baseline and then it certainly contributed to me being above my baseline energetically. Like I was sleeping four hours a night and felt like I was over caffeinated all the time without a sip of caffeine. Um, and like it, it was unhealthy. Um, and it took medication to get me back out of that state versus the more recent time I came out of my depression. Granted, I was on a different medication that wasn't an antidepressant. It was designed for the more cyclical nature of my mental health experiences. So ideally it was going to already prevent that same upward trajectory once I came out of the depression. But there were still times where I felt myself getting overly energetic. And the first time I experienced it, I was like, this is what it feels to live again. Like I'm just so excited to be alive and was angry when my friends and family suggested that it was unhealthy. I was like, I feel like I just lost a year of my life. I just want to go enjoy myself. Like, please don't tell me that I'm unhealthy and should be medicated. Like that was my response. And this time when I came out of the depression and I felt myself becoming jittery, like feeling like I didn't need as much sleep to function. I was scared of it. I was like, I don't want to be back in that place where I feel like I'm over caffeinated all the time and anxious all the time and wired and like thinking a little bit. I was thinking irrationally about myself in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, So even from just like that experience, the first experience, the second, it gave me a much better awareness of my own I don't know, like what it feels like to be inside my mind, my body and what's healthy and what's not and what I can do to manage those things. Um, Mm -hmm. Would you say that like part of this healing process that you're still in, and I appreciate you saying that because it's it's not finite, right? We Mm -hmm. continue this work until we pass, right? And I think that, would you say part of that process is you like, getting to know yourself, like developing a deeper sense of self-knowledge as you go through life? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also, for me, it's been clarifying the kind of person that I want to be. Mm. So like really taking a look at, okay, who I am right now, like what makes me tick, like what honestly is a part of my identity and what is like how I function and why do I, function in certain ways why do i make certain decisions and then taking that next step of okay do do i want that to be who i am um and is this something that i want to maintain or something that i want to shift in some way for anyone out there that you know struggling with depression or let's say isolation or suicidal ideation you know since you've been through this uh, and you're you know you're still experiencing at least you know remnants of of some of your struggles right on a daily basis because we don't we don't fully get rid of them they're there but we learn how to live with you know how our mind works mm-hmm. how our brain works and therefore we can sort of change it through changing our behaviors changing our patterns like you were saying you're empowering yourself um are there like pieces of advice that come out in your mind based on your experiences that you can share with others on you know let's say they don't they don't have a lot of belief right now they don't want to be here anymore um, first thing I want to say because I always want to say this is like I just want to give everyone a hug like or whatever you need like I wish I could send you some ice cream or send you flowers like whatever you feel like you need right now because it just it like makes me want to cry thinking about people who are really struggling and in it Um, yeah. I think 
for me at least, I think it is really so dependent on your personality and like your existing resources. For me, my personality type, it really was helpful to stop judging myself for feeling the way that I was. And some days just allowing myself to feel like shit. Um, like I remember this last depressive period, there was probably a month straight where I would tell myself, I'm going to get up out of bed at 7am and I'm going to go and do extra technical work before practice. Cause that would be me getting healthy. Like that would be a, that would be a healthy productive step towards me getting healthy and feeling motivated and taking accountability and all these things and changing my behaviors and every morning my alarm would go off and I would not have the energy, not have the capacity to get out of bed. And I would hate myself for it. And I would, my whole day would be ruined because it would go back to that one instance where I was like, you were weak, you weren't strong enough. You did right. Like all the thoughts that come along with that. Mm-hmm. And I'd obsess, obsess over it. And then finally I was like, no, I, me getting out of bed does not dictate my like health trajectory that one instance i'm gonna allow myself to sleep i think i need the sleep and it's not me saying i'm decommitting to getting better it's not me saying i'm decommitting to staying around and choosing to live but i'm gonna decommit to setting my alarm at 7 a.m because clearly that's not working for me like it's time to switch it up and even though I think on paper, most people would say, yes, that you should do that. You should get out of bed at 7am, do it, make that choice. Right. I couldn't do it. And the best thing I did was being like, okay, never mind. to that. Yeah. We're going to like tell myself, we're going to do what is like one thing that I actually want to do. Oh, I want to take a walk around the block. We're going to celebrate the shit out of that goal. And like, focus on that instead instead of like doing this hard thing that mm-hmm. it just makes me want to die getting in bed Absolutely. yeah I, I love sleep <laughs> i feel like that's a beautiful just way to end it on but just like the process of building like atomic habits that are appropriate to you and where you are in your life you know i think we live yeah. in this hyper individualized hyper productivity society where if you're not getting after it you're not crushing it you know and yeah. i think that that's something to be said for like you know, that, that is a practice in self-love. Like what you're describing is like you, you knew, you found out what you needed in that moment and you started to honor it. And then you started to feel better, yeah. you know, because a lot of times we're fighting what we need so much to get what we want. And what we want is actually really unhealthy for us. <laughs> yeah. Kind of ironic. I know. Our culture stinks uh, sometimes. <laughs> it does, but it, but it's conversations like this that help it improve, you know, and more people yeah. are out there having these conversations. And like you said, you know, when, it, even when we talked about masculinity, when we started, you know, um, you know, when you talked, spoke about your brother, right? Like, like more men are sharing, more men are stepping forward. Like it doesn't make you any less courageous, any less of a warrior, but you know, I think we need to soften in that way, right? We need to be able to speak yeah. about things that are bothering us about the struggles we have. And, you know, um, you know, for, for that to happen, culture needs to embrace that, needs to be open to that too. And, and that's how we shift over time, right? Um, yeah. You know, Skylar, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing time with me. I know, you know, these topics are not always the most comfortable to talk about, but I think that your ability to share your experiences, not only as a, you know, uh, retired pro athlete, but as a female who's came up in, you know, very elite sports practice, um, you know, it's very niche, but a lot of people can, can relate to like the craft that you dedicate yourself to and, you know, the stuff you suffered through throughout, because, you know, I feel like people do this in so many ways, whether they want to be a medical doctor or a lawyer or a CEO. And then, you know, they, they go through these struggles and, you know, they, they don't realize that perhaps the thing they're chasing is, is contributing to, you know, their inability to regulate, to be healthy, to be happy. Yeah. So well said. It's been amazing. Thank you. For Beautiful, my me. friend. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'd love to have you back on at some point to talk, you know, more about the 
the mood disorder stuff because I feel like a lot of people have misconceptions about it and it, it, it would mm-hmm. honestly be awesome if we had, you know, someone that specialized in, in treating it and then also you and we can kind of have a round table and chat about it because I think a I lot of people that. don't really understand what that means. They don't understand, you know, how it affects different people differently, you know? Um, yeah. and, uh, yeah. And we, you can approach it from a behavioral standpoint or from a bio biological, like biochemical standpoint, but, um, you know, ultimately this show was really started to just help people give people resources and help more people feel less alone out there because you know i'd say most people are struggling with something you know but often we walk around with our heads down our shoulders tight and we don't really tell anybody unless unless we have those deep relationships i love that idea i think that that episode needs to needs to be a thing that the world has so right whenever (laughs) cool uh skylar thank you so much my friend for sharing some time with me um it's been a blessing and uh yeah i can't wait for this episode to launch so for all of you listening out there, thanks for tuning in. Um, and uh, do you want to tell everyone really quick before I let you go where they can find you, how they can connect with you? Sure. Yeah, I think best place to find me would just be on Instagram at Skylar Debray. And the spelling is not intuitive. Um, you might, you'll probably see it in the episode copy, but it's S-C-H-U-Y-L-E-R-D-E-B-R-E-E. Okay, and Debray is your last name. I've been saying Debris, so I should have a bad host over here. Should have asked again. That every like, who thinks when they see D E B R E E? Oh yeah, that says Debray. Like, no, yep. it, it's really fine. <laughs> <laughs> I just yeah, I don't correct people because I'm like I don't awesome. agree with it. <laughs> well, we'll go connect with her, everybody. I will throw a link to her social media in the show notes. Um, but also, are you planning on hosting more of that? podcast that you were working with is that still in the works do you want to throw a shout out to that thank you for that totally i would love that um so i've been working with an amazing organization called uh, morgan's message uh, and you can find morgan's message on instagram the same way just at morgan's message and um we started a podcast called the mental matchup again at the mental matchup on instagram where we have conversations about athletes sorry conversations with athletes about their mental health experiences and it has been really rewarding and we've had some amazing athletes on and also professionals in the mental health space and coaches just people in that world um trying to reduce the stigma around mental health especially in the athletic community but i think it it applies to applies to anyone as we were talking about today so thanks for that that space also yeah i'll throw a link to those too uh, also in the show notes so go check it out everybody tune in all right, Skylar. I'll uh, I'll see you next time. I wish people could realize all their dreams and wealth and fame, and so that they could see that it's not where you're going to find your sense of completion. Everything you gain in life will rot and fall apart, and all that will be left of you is what was in your heart. And your